A young woman wanted to go on a spring break trip with her friends. Her parents said no. She was able to sneak away and go on the trip. And then she disappeared. That almost sounds like a story a parent would tell their kids to try and scare them. But it's a dark world. It's a true story. And it's the story of Brittany Drexel. Brittany was born in Rochester, New York on October 7, 1991. Shortly after she was born, her mother Dawn married a guy named Chad Drexel. Chad legally adopted Brittany and he really raised her as his own daughter her entire life. Growing up, she loved playing soccer. Now, when I was 17, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I had a hundred ideas for what I wanted my career to be, which most people probably do and Brittany was the same way. The things that interested her were nursing, cosmetology, and modeling. In 2008, her home life changed drastically. Chad and Dawn separated, and that wasn't easy for Brittany to handle. Her grades in school started to decline, and then at one point, she overdosed on some medications. In April of 2009, Brittany approached her mom. Now, the way that I picture this in my mind, Brittany is getting ready to ask her mom a huge question. Maybe she did something nice for her brought her a cup of coffee, did the dishes, something like that. And then she walks away and, uh, oh, yeah, I have a question before I walk away. That's just how I pictured this in my mind. Brittany asked if she could go to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, for spring break with some of her friends. Now, Myrtle Beach is about 12 and a half hours from Rochester. Don did not know the friends that Brittany was wanting to go with, and she didn't feel comfortable with her 17-year-old daughter going there for spring break. So... She said no. This led to a lot of arguing back and forth between Brittany and Dawn over the next few days. Until April 22nd when Brittany asked Dawn if she could just go to a friend's house for a few days. A friend that Dawn did know. At that point, after the long days of arguing, it seemed like that might be a good idea. And maybe things would calm down a little bit. Dawn did want to talk to one of her parents on the phone and Brittany was able to arrange that. Or kind of. Brittany had someone talk on the phone, but it was later learned that that wasn't one of the parents that Don believed it was. It was another one of Brittany's friends. But this is where being 17 kicked in, because Brittany didn't go to that friend's house. She met up with the other friends, and they made the 12 and a half hour trip to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. In the early 1900s, with the help of some amazing beaches, the leaders around Myrtle Beach really began setting up the place for tourists. They wanted this to be a vacation town that rivaled places in Florida. In 2010, the population of the town was about 27,000 people, but there was an estimated 20 million tourists that traveled to Myrtle Beach every single year. As a beach town, tourist area, with college students and high schoolers flooding in the area for spring break, it was very appealing to Brittany and her friends. 
April 22nd, 2009 is when Brittany left Rochester. Brittany did ask her boyfriend John to go with them, but he was unable to go because he had work. So it was just her and a few friends. The first couple of days, she spent hanging out on the beach and at the hotel with some of her friends. On the third day, she talked to her mother and little sister on the phone. She told them that everything was going okay and told them that she was at the beach. She told her mom that she loved her and they ended the phone call. And that would be the last thing that Don ever heard from Brittany. The comment about the beach really didn't seem too suspicious to Don. Rochester is next to Lake Ontario, so there is a beach. Usually in April, it's pretty cold there, but that day it happened to be unusually warm for Rochester with the temperature in the 80s. So it made sense for Don that Brittany and her friends, they could have went and spent the day at the beach. The first few days that Brittany was in Myrtle Beach, she and John texted back and forth continuously. When they were both awake, it was very rare for them to go 10 minutes without sending a text to each other. Brittany talked to John about the different parties and clubs that they were going to, and even though the drinking age was 21, the bars around the area were letting in hundreds of high school students. While they were out one night, Brittany ran into another group of people that she knew from Rochester. One of the guys in the group was named Peter, someone that she and John both knew. By April 25th, Brittany told John that she wasn't having a good time anymore and that she was looking forward to coming home the next day. While things started out great with the group of friends she went with, she told John that some people had started using drugs and she wasn't into everything that they were doing. So she kind of separated herself from them. Around 8 o'clock that night, she sent John a text saying that she was on her way to hang out with Peter at the Blue Water Resort. Almost immediately as she arrived at the resort, one of her friends texted Brittany asking if she could bring back the shorts she borrowed because the friend wanted to wear them out that night. Brittany was a little frustrated because she had just walked from their hotel to the resort. Now she had to walk a mile back to the hotel to return the shorts. But she told Peter that she would be right back. She also texted John as she was leaving the resort. Around 9 o'clock that night, John started feeling like something was wrong. It had been almost 30 minutes since Brittany responded to one of his text messages. He starts texting her more and more. Then he called her. There was no answer. Now an hour later, John is at the edge of his seat and he knew that something bad had to have happened for her to not be responding to him. Worried and scared for Brittany, John called Dawn and told her the truth about where Brittany was. Initially, Dawn was angry with Brittany as she had snuck away. The anger soon turned into fear as her calls to Brittany also went unanswered. Initially, the phone would ring and ring and ring. Then it started going straight to voicemail. That night, Myrtle Beach police were contacted and Brittany was reported as missing. The following morning, Don, John, and two other friends headed to Myrtle Beach to start searching for Brittany. On April 26, investigators began canvassing nearby hotels for any signs of Brittany. They also interviewed the friends that she traveled there with. The friends said that they hadn't seen her and that they had also been trying to get a hold of her but hadn't been able to. On April 27th, detectives found out that Peter and his friends left Myrtle Beach to go back to Rochester about 2 in the morning, the night that Brittany went missing. 
They seem to have left in a hurry also, since they left some of their clothes in the hotel room. After getting video from a traffic camera around the area, investigators were able to find Brittany walking to Peter's hotel around 8.15pm. She was on her phone, which matches up with the timestamps of the text between her and John. The entrance to the resort that Peter was staying at also had cameras at the front door. These cameras showed Brittany walking in the doors, and then just a few minutes later, around 8.45pm, Brittany walks out of the front doors alone which is consistent with the story so far that she got there, received the text from a friend to bring the shorts back, so she left to walk back. The detectives estimated that it would have taken Brittany about 15 minutes to walk from Peter's hotel to the traffic camera where they first got her on video, but there were no signs of Brittany walking back through that traffic camera. Even though the video shows Brittany walking out of the hotel where Peter was staying alone, it was also odd that he left in the middle of the night. And another thing, while not really wrong, but just odd given the circumstances, was that as soon as he got back home and Brittany was reported missing, he hired an attorney. Now this very well could be because he knew he was going to be questioned by the cops, so he wanted an attorney. Peter did completely cooperate with investigators during interviews, and it seemed like he was in a similar situation as Brittany's, where a friend in the group wasn't supposed to be in Myrtle Beach, and then his mom demanded for him to come back, so the group hurried up and left that night. Investigators looked into the story, and they were able to verify, and everything seemed to be true. The next thing that detectives were able to access was the cell phone records for Brittany which showed something that was a little bit more surprising. Anytime that someone called Brittany's phone, it pinged off of a nearby cell tower, showing an approximate location for where the phone was at at the time of the call. When John started calling her about 9.30 after she quit responding to his text on the night that she went missing, it showed that her phone was traveling in the opposite direction from where she should have been going in order to get back to the hotel. Another call, just 20 minutes later, showed that the phone was pinging in Surfside, a town seven miles outside of Myrtle Beach, which led to this theory that Brittany was placed in a car, because it would have taken about two hours to make the walk to Surfside, but only about a 15 minute drive. And the last ping on Brittany's phone came at 11.58 p.m., three hours after her last text was sent to John. It pinged an hour away from Myrtle Beach, near a swampy area in Georgetown, South Carolina. Georgetown is a very rural area. There's rivers, swamps, lakes, and very wooded areas everywhere. It was definitely a place where a teenager from out of the state probably wouldn't have known about and would have been taken against her will. An extensive search took place in various areas. Dogs, boats, divers, volunteers, helicopters, ATVs, and everything that you can imagine was used to search the area that was infested with gators, snakes, wild hogs, and a lot of bugs. They even had dedicated teams that drove ATVs up and down the edge of the water to try and scare off alligators and snakes so that they could safely bring in dogs for tracking. 
and even after all of their efforts and extensive searches, there were no leads found. After a few days, Brittany's family and friends returned back to Rochester. And from there, there are a lot of theories that are highly probable. Investigators, including the FBI, announced in 2016 that they believe that Brittany was murdered shortly after her disappearance. Dawn is hoping that Brittany's still out there and that she's alive. She believes that Brittany may have been abducted and forced into human trafficking. Initially, people talked about this option as being the least likely to have happened. And the reasoning behind that was because Myrtle Beach was supposed to be a safe place. Even reporters that had worked there had barely heard of, or at least reported on, any human trafficking cases. But Myrtle Beach is a tourist town. It has 20 million visitors a year from all over the world. It's a perfect trap for the suspects in human trafficking. Then, in 2019, a report came out listing the county that Myrtle Beach was in as the number one county in South Carolina for human trafficking. And South Carolina ranked the 12th highest state in America. One of the investigators talked to 48 Hours about the human trafficking cases around the area and described how Brittany didn't really meet the profile for the victims that they do normally see. He talked about how it was very rare for someone to be kidnapped right off of the sidewalk and forced into sex work and being held for years. He talked about how a lot of the victims are lured away, runaways, trying to get away from home, or people with drug addictions. Then another allocation came out in 2016. Now, I'm not a reporter, I don't have any journalism training, so I don't really know the legality of this. So I'm going to play this safe and we'll call this guy Mr. Green. Now, the reason behind this is because Mr. Green is currently serving 25 years in prison on unrelated manslaughter charges. When Mr. Green talked to investigators about this, somewhere along the way, reporters released his real name and now he's filing lawsuits against them, claiming that the people that he has accused in this case, they have now put out a hit on him in prison and people have tried to kill him in prison. Now, I know the odds of him hearing this podcast are very, very, very slim, but with my luck, it would probably happen. I mean, even if he sued me, the most that he would probably get is a couple of Crime Nerds coffee cups, which you can get also without suing me. The link for the coffee cups is in the show notes and in my Instagram bio. But anyways, Mr. Green has alleged that in 2009, around the time that Brittany went missing, he was at a drug stash house in McLarenville which is between Myrtle Beach and where Brittany's phone last pinked. He said that he witnessed Brittany being held against her will and sexually assaulted. He walks by, I guess like nothing's going on, goes to the backyard where he pays for the drugs that he was getting. As they were talking, Brittany ran from the house, a guy chased her down, drug her back inside, then there were two gunshots. He said that the guys wrapped her body up, and talked about taking her to an alligator-infested area to dump her. Now, at face value, it's a very weird way for all this to go down. Someone's over to buy drugs, you walk by, a girl's kidnapped who's on national news, then they kill her pretty much right in front of him, and that this whole story is only coming out after you're facing a long time in prison. 
seems very likely that it could have been made up. But Mr. Green named one of the people that was at the house, Timothy. Timothy, he was also facing a long prison sentence for a robbery charge, where he was the getaway driver, and the other two guys in the robbery shot the cashier. Now, Timothy was offered a lesser sentence with a plea bargain if he agreed to take a polygraph for Brittany's case, which he failed. Right before the polygraph started, Timothy did end up admitting that the only knowledge he had on Brittany was that he overheard two people arguing about who had her phone. As the polygraph went on, he was asked if he had seen her or if he was involved in her disappearance, and the results showed that he was lying. I'm assuming that he knew that the results were showing that because he started getting so angry that they had to stop the polygraph. The prosecutors argued that because he didn't finish the polygraph, then the plea bargain shouldn't stand. But after some back and forth in court, it stood, and he was sentenced to time he had already served, which was 319 days. So as weird as this drug deal went for Mr. Green, it seemed that there may have actually been some truth to it. I guess since polygraphs can't be used in court, it may have at least pointed in a direction to focus. But... Almost like things are going in the right direction, and then Mr. Green opened his mouth again, and he gave a second interview, and he kind of gave a different story. In this second interview, he said that he went to the house on April 27th. He saw Brittany there being held against her will. A few days later, he was back at the stash house, and there she was again, and that's when she was killed. A month later, the same people took him to a dirt road, showed him her body was in the middle of the woods. This time, he also gave a different name for the person who killed her, and it was someone that he just knew as Nate. So, as of now, Brittany's case is still an open investigation. Holding on to the only hope that she can, that Brittany is still alive, Don has moved to Myrtle Beach to be closer where Brittany was last seen. This is going to bring us to a conclusion of this episode of Crime Nerds. Thank you for listening.